I'm glad you all are here, and uh, I hope you're all ready for what God has got in store for us this morning. Uh, we are in a series on Joshua, as you can't see behind me. Uh, we are in a series on Joshua, that's all right. Um, what we're doing is, for the last several weeks, if you have or haven't been here, we've been focusing on this phrase in Joshua, this command that Joshua gave to the Israelites before they were even heading into the promised land. I, I promise you we will get to chapter 2 of Joshua uh, in, in a little while, but the command was this, prepare your provisions, because God was moving. God was taking them into the promise, taking them to where he was going. And so we've been focusing on that for the last several weeks when we've gathered here on what are some things as God's people today we are to be preparing as we move into God's promise, as we move to where God wants us to be and, and how God wants to use us. So uh, we are going to be out of the first or out of the New Testament book of First Peter. If you have your Bibles with you, uh, New Testament, First Peter, we're going to be in chapter one um, this morning as we look at this. Uh, in the preparations that we are to be making as God's people into the promise where God wants us to take us. And uh, as you turn your, make your way there in 1 Peter chapter 1, we're going to begin in verse 13 here in a second. Uh, give a little context. The, the book or letter of 1 Peter is written to a group of believers that are living in a world that is amidst a persecution, amidst a suffering. If you read through 1 Peter as a whole, and it's not a very long book, matter of fact, you could probably read 1 and 2 Peter uh, this afternoon if you wanted to, you can find this constant theme of suffering as a Christian. If you're one of those who's a Bible trivia fan and you want to kind of ask a good question, be able to answer a question, uh, 1 Peter is the only book in the New Testament outside the book of Acts that uses the title Christian. Um, it uses in reference, obviously, to Christians, but it's one of the only one is the only one outside of the book of Acts. And it's important to us to know that because it gives us a time frame on when Peter was writing this letter to this group of believers. If you look in verse one, it's to those who are elect exiles of dispersion, which we'll talk about here in a second. But it lets us know that this letter was written to a group of believers who are going through amidst the persecution, most likely under Emperor Nero, which places this writing somewhere between 63 and 63, 62 and 63 A.D., in which Emperor Nero told all the Jews, including the Christians, that they had to leave Rome, so they were excommunicated. And so Peter is led by the Spirit to write to this group of believers that are living in a world that has shown its true colors, that is becoming hostile to those who are in the faith. And this is the ultimate reality that we're all going to face as Christians. The more we live for Christ, the more we become transformed like Christ, the more we're going to experience the similar response to Christ and being persecuted and to have to go through suffering. And though many of us probably don't desire suffering or run into suffering, we tend to want to avoid it or shy away from it. If you read through the Bible, you see that the Bible does not predict, pre, or depict suffering of the saints as a negative thing. Rather, the Bible depicts suffering of the saints as a positive because it reminds us that we are living, in fact, for Jesus Christ. Suffering according to the Bible, according to God's word, is a result of our sanctification, which is our being set apart. It's our becoming more like our Savior. So when we suffer as a believer, when we suffer for our salvation, we suffer for, with, 
and like Jesus. And this is the image that the Bible gives us. And the believers here that Peter is writing to are that, experiencing that. And so he's giving them instruction through the Holy Spirit on how they can continue to live out their salvation, to live out their faith in the midst of a world that is persecuting them, is beginning to become hostile to them, but that they can remain faithful. So let's read our passage this morning. We're going to begin in verse 13, and we're going to read through verse 25 this morning in 1 Peter chapter 1. And the word of the Lord says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action, and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your fathers, not with the perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like, the, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Verse 20. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, raised him, who raised him from the dead, and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of the imperishable through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So let's walk through this this morning. If you jump back with me to verse 13, you see that it begins with therefore or in conclusion. If you ever read through any of Paul's writings in Romans or any of his other letters, you see that, that connecting statement frequently in those letters. What therefore does when we're reading or studying our Bible on our own is meant to take us back to a previous statement that has already been said. Peter is drawing a connecting line to what he is saying here in these passages to what he's already stated in the previous passages in chapter 1. So what does he say in conclusion, therefore? Well, Peter begins the opening of his letter to address these individuals who are in exile, who are going through suffering, who are being persecuted. And he points to the eternal glory of their salvation that is found in Jesus Christ. And Peter draws out that it is this glory that they've been called into, this salvation they've been given that has been spoken of by the prophets in the Old Testament. And because their allegiance, just like our allegiance, is to something greater than ourselves, something older than ourselves, and revealed before we even knew we needed it, no matter what we go through in this life, we are representatives of Jesus Christ. And because God has set all these things in place, we are to prepare ourselves, as he says, for what God has called us to do. So therefore, because of what God has done, he says, prepare yourselves, your minds for action. There's four things I want us to catch this morning about preparations that we need to make, and all through one uh, constant, one, one thing we are to continue to look at, and that is the Word of God. First thing we see in verse 13 is we are to prepare for commitment. 
And being part of God's promise and being part of where God wants to take us as a family, take us as, as individuals, take us as his children, take us as a church, it begins with us preparing for commitment. Verse 13 says, prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And a misconception about Christianity is that Christianity is a blind faith. We believe that you, we live by faith, not by sight, but that does not mean we live without knowledge, we live without understanding, or we live without knowing. To be blind means that we are unable to perceive things as the way they are. But as a believer, we're not blind, but we have been given true sight now to see the world as it truly is. So now we have the word of God, our constant, that we are to prepare for in our commitment to see the world and to see people through the lens of God, which is the, world, which is the word of God. So despite the world's view of Christianity, we're not ignorant. We don't fly by the seat of our pants, but rather to be a Christian is to see the things in life through the lens of God's word. So to do this, it begins with commitment. We have to be committed to the Word of God, Genesis to Revelation. And the thing about commitment is our commitment can be challenged by persecution, by suffering, by failure, by stumbling in our faith. And, and we can see how this plays out in other parts of our life. For like when I was in high school, there was a group of guys I always hung around with. And so we would always be together, always doing things together. When summer came around, We'd either find a river or we'd find a swimming pool that we could go to. And we'd jump off the high dive or jump off a bridge into, a swimming pool, into the river. And it always led to a point of playing chicken, which I'm sure most of you all played chicken at some point in time in a swimming pool. I don't know why we ever played, because I have a friend named Ryan uh, that would win every single time because he would end the game basically when he got bored with it by jumping off the bridge or jumping off the high dive into a full-fledged belly flop into the water and it gave that nice sound that everyone was like, oh, and everyone quit. We were done. Now, I never made it that far. I was never that good because there was always, you know, the diving round. I could do the dives, but then it got to the flips. And at that stage of my life, I was not aerodynamic. I did not have enough core muscles. I was more like a semi than a hummingbird through the air. And so I would always be out at the flipping round. Because what I would do, I would remember my past experience with a flip off of a diving board. And I would remember that every time I would do it, I would either not compensate enough, so you do a, a back flap on, on the water, which hurts, or I would overcompensate because I want to make sure I, I did enough of it, and I would go too far and end up doing a belly flop. To which case, I would lose the game, and I would you know, willingly be out of it because I would be red all over. But, so I never made it to the final round. And, and, and it was because of my lack of commitment. It was my past experiences with doing a flip, my, my ideas that, okay, I failed at this before, and I don't know if I can do it again or if I can do it right. And I remember that it was, being, it was painful the last time I did this. Well, in Christianity, we can do the exact same thing. And that we have an experience in our Christian walk, in our salvation, that it has become painful. We've been persecuted for it. We've suffered for standing up for Jesus Christ, for making a decision that the group of people around us did not agree with or think we should make. And so we, we have this, put, this, this idea of fear inside of us. If I do that again, situations or experiences will happen that I don't necessarily want. And so what we do, it's just natural, we tend to shy away from those things. 
We don't get committed into those things. We don't give our entire effort into those things. This is what the believers have experienced and what they're in danger of doing as Peter's writing them. They have experienced suffering. They have experienced persecution. They've experienced their faith being tested. And they're at this point where they can either become committed to walking with Jesus or they can stand back and be shy about it. They can be timid about it. And Peter writes them and says, don't do that. Instead, prepare your minds for action. Prepare to be committed. And that's an interesting phrase there in verse 13. You may have a notation after it. The literal translation from the Greek means to gird up your loins for action. What it means and what is being commanded here is no matter what they have experienced, no matter what we have experienced as a believer, we are to continuously roll up our sleeves and to put our mind in gear. It's a metaphor that Peter uses that would have been known about in his day where men at that time would wear robes. Okay, we don't wear robes today, but we can understand this. There's times where you want to get to work and you've got to do something. And so you take off your jacket. You ever ever been around someone? Oh, they're taking their jacket off. They're getting serious now, right? And so we understand this idea. This is what Peter is is drawing from this image that these, these believers understand. That as a man, you would wear a robe, but the robe would hinder you from doing the work that you were called to do. And so what would you do? You would roll up your sleeves, you would take your robe and you would hike it up and you'd refasten your belt so the robe would not trip you up or slow you down from doing the work that you were called to. This is what we're called to as believers. It is this image that we are to prepare our minds no matter what we've experienced in leaving, living for Christ and that we remove any hindrances from our life and from our minds so we can get the job done. This is part of preparing for the promise of God. Is we have to look at our life and is there anything hindering me from doing what God is calling me to do? The writer of Hebrews writes in Hebrews chapter 1 or Hebrews chapter 12 verse 1 that we should lay aside every weight, every sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The Bible teaches us in this moment is no matter what we've experienced, we must endure in our life for living for Christ. We, we should not allow anything or anyone to hinder us from continuing to do what we've been called to do or commanded to do for Christ. You may have experienced failure as a Christian. You may have experienced the attack of Satan that makes you feel unworthy or that you don't measure up. And a lot of Christians check out at that point. The instructions of Scripture is that when we experience that, we need to understand that our failures do not finish our eternal race. But we learn from our failures And we continue to prepare our minds for the action that God has continuously called us to until he calls us home. This is why Christianity is a call to commitment. I don't see how you can be a Christian and not be committed to the word of God and what God has called you to. To be committed to Christ means that we have to continue to prepare our minds. There in verse 13, the word Lord says that to prepare your minds, you're being sober minded. In other translations, it means to be self-disciplined, to be spiritually and morally alert, to be self-controlled, to be sober in spirit. 
Peter uses the same phrase other times in the same letter. In chapter 4, it says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Again, in chapter 5, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. In all three cases that Peter's led to use this by the Spirit about being sober-minded, all three cases impact our Christian walk and living. Here in chapter 1, it impacts our action for the kingdom of God. In chapter 4, it impacts our prayers. In chapter 5, it impacts our ability to be ready for the attacks that Satan's going to bring about us. The word sober-minded or just sober means that we are to be present. We are to be ready in life. We are to be ready for what God may put before us. It is to be alert and to be mentally engaged in the things of God. It is to be calm despite our circumstances and by being controlled by the Word of God and the Spirit of God inside of us. To be sober is to be committed to the action of God. And it begins by our commitment to the Word of God. One commentator wrote that our outlook determines our outcome and our attitude determines our action. So Peter began by calling these believers who are suffering to remember the eternal promise and the covenant of God that was found in Jesus Christ. And it began by focusing their mind. What they were allowing their mind to give attention to. So we're not to focus on the things of this world, but to focus on the eternal things. That's, again, our connecting word, therefore. And it all begins by setting our mind on the right thing as obedient children. Our preparing for commitment in the Word of God then begins to prepare for change. Look in verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. That phrase means do not slip back into your past sinful nature to satisfy yourself. The Bible states that we are God's people. And being God's people, we are therefore sanctified. That word sanctified means we are set apart for the purpose and promise of God that while we live in this world, we're not of this world. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your what? Your mind. The reason is given that we should be transformed and allow God to change us, to sanctify us, to set us apart from this world is given later in 1 Peter chapter 2, where Peter is led to write, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim His excellencies, the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. See, the call of Christianity, we've got to understand this, isn't just the call to be saved. It isn't just a call to say, I have eternal security, but it's a call to be saved and be given eternal security so I can be an eternal instrument of righteousness to reveal the eternal glory of God out of my life. And the only way that can happen is if I am preparing my mind to the commitment of the things of God and also preparing my heart to the changes that God wants to do in my life. As a Christian, we are one who is a sinner, who has now become a saint by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so the Bible teaches us now as Christians, we should live in such a way that we have in fact been changed. For this reason, many churches preach this, and it is a truth, but some people can make it legalistic. Meaning you have to do this or you're not saved. The Bible doesn't say that at all. 
But it does say there are things that we should and should not be involved in. It does say there are conversations we should not have. The Bible does say there are behaviors we should not imitate. There are words we should not use. And I would even go so far as to say there are types of music that we should not listen to. It's not because we don't have the freedom in Christ to do so. The Bible clearly states that we are free in Christ. But in that freedom, we're also wrestling with the temptation of our sinful nature to use that freedom to, to satisfy our former ignorance, to satisfy our sinful selves. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 16, you are to live as, free, as people who are free, but not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as servants of God. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit to the yoke of slavery. Again, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, You are called to freedom. Brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. So I am free in Christ. If you're in Christ, you're free, meaning you can do anything you want. That's true. The Bible also say all things may be permissible, but not all things are beneficial. And so is this thing, is it changing me to become more like Christ or is it causing me to be more like the world? God's goal for your life is to change you, to set you apart in this world. And God wants to change us so we might live and show this world who and what we belong to. The Bible says here in 1 Peter chapter 1 that we are to be imitators of our Heavenly Father. And as an imitator of our Heavenly Father, we are to conduct ourselves with fear in our time of exile. We are to live with this understanding that we are in this world, but we're not of this world. We are a part of this world, but we don't belong to this world. The word exile there in verse 17 refers to an individual who is in a place, but is not a national citizen of that place meaning they're simply visiting, they're simply touring. They're just there for a little while. And Peter uses this language again in chapter 2, verse 11. It says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. They wage war against your soul. So if I'm going to prepare for change, and if we're going to prepare for change, it begins with this understanding that I live in a world and among a people that I don't belong to. So they're going to do things that I shouldn't be doing. They're going to say things and believe things that I shouldn't say and I shouldn't believe. I have to understand that this world that does not know Jesus is going to conduct itself in a way that does not glorify Jesus, and that's not what I'm called to. So I'm to prepare myself for commitment and prepare myself for God to change me. Not so I can bring glory to myself, but that other people can see the way I live my life and see the truth in me that there is a God and he is alive and active. I am the walking billboard for God's glory. You are the walking billboard for God's glory, for the world to see. Peter goes on that we not only prepare for commitment and prepare for change, we prepare for the covenant. Look in, in verse 18 and through 21. It says, Knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your fathers, not with the perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. This idea of covenant is, 
is a predominant theme throughout Scripture, and in particular here in 1 Peter. If you go back early in chapter 1, you see in verses 3 and 6 and 10 uh, through 12 of chapter 1, there's a calling to remember the covenant. In verses 18 through 21, which we just read, we have the same focus of this covenant. In chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, verses 9 through 10, verses 21 through 24, you have Peter reminding the people of God who are going through persecution and suffering to remember the covenant. In chapter 3, verses 8 through 22, you have the same reminder of the covenant, the promise of God. In chapter 4 and 5 of 1 Peter, the instructions are now, how do we live according to the covenant of God? So the Bible is pretty clear here. In order to live a life of commitment, in order to live a life of being changed by God, we must continuously prepare our minds by focusing on the covenant found in Jesus Christ alone. The theme of 1 Peter is the covenantal living and suffering of God's people in this world. What does covenant mean? It means promise. I'm to prepare myself for the promises of God, knowing that the promises of God will never change and God will never go back on his word. The language in verses 18 through 21 can take us back into our series of Joshua. As the Israelites were called out of Egypt, called out of slavery, they were ransomed, not with silver or gold, but they were bought and freed through the power and the authority of God which was emphasized in the last night of Passover in which the blood of the lamb was wiped over the doorpost. Here Peter is drawing from that image and to place it on our head, but on a much grander scale. Our price of sin has been paid in full once and for all. The sin we inherited from our fathers, from our ancestors, that sinful nature has been paid in full, not through an animal lamb, but through the lamb of God, who is Christ Jesus, our Lord, who the Bible says was foreknown before the foundation of the world. So if you're here this morning, you're wrestling with why would I want to change? Why would I want to be different? Why would I want to act different in this world as a Christian? Why does that even matter? Well, look in verse 17, because we understand God is going to judge impartially according to each one's deeds. Yet with this understanding, when I place my faith in Jesus Christ and him alone as a lamb that was pure and unblemished before a holy God, and now I am free of those things, I understand that by my faith and trust in Jesus Christ's complete work, his death and his resurrection, all of my sins have been completely removed from my record before a holy God on the day of judgment. And by my faith and trust in Jesus Christ and his complete work, I'm reminded that now I am to live a according to that promise so other people can come into the same promise that I have been given. That's the change. Prepare your minds for action because what we all wrestle with is we want to live for ourselves, but now as a Christian, I don't live for myself. I live for my Savior. I lift Him up. I want people to see Him in me. So I have to cling to the covenant of the promise of God. We no longer look to this world as what's going to give us joy or satisfaction. We no longer look and rely upon the world to bring us hope. Verse 21, our faith and hope are in God. Because it is He who knew who we truly were in our sinful state. And it is He who took the only action possible to release us from that bondage. The call here is to remember the past. To remember where we've come from. 
But the call here is not to dwell in the past, which I think we're so tempted to do it sometimes. We never did it like that before. Well, I'm not sure. I've never tried that. I learn from the past so I can live in the present and move into the future where God is taking us. And the beauty of this calling, because this is hard, this calling to commitment, this calling to change, this calling to promise and living out the promise is hard. But the beauty of it is we don't have to do it alone. The Bible says that God is for us, not against us. The Bible says that Jesus Christ is interceding for us in the throne room of God, before God, for us. The Bible says that God's spirit now dwells inside of us. And the Bible says, because we are such a great cloud of witnesses, Hebrews 12, verse 1, we are surrounded by, which isn't just speaking of those in the faith in Hebrews 11, but it's speaking about your brothers and sisters in Christ who are surrounding you right now in the church. So in order for me to prepare my mind for action, to prepare for commitment, to prepare for change, to prepare for the promises of God, I have to prepare for community. Look in verse 22 and 23 of 1 Peter. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. By my faith in Christ, I've been purified and called to the obedience of truth for this purpose, for a sincere brotherly love. It's a preparing for community. Our faith and trust in God means, yes, we're completely relying upon Him, but here's the beauty thing. We're also relying upon one another. You're relying upon the church. You're relying upon the body of Christ. You're relying upon your brothers and sisters in Christ. That phrase, sincere brotherly love, is the the Greek word love, Philadelphia. It it means brotherly love. It's a love that we have for a close-knit group of people. It's the love we have for a family member. It's a sincere love that enables us to drop all hypocrisy. It's to be who we are. To have a sincere brotherly love within the church, meaning there's no room in the church for a holier-than-thou attitude. We all understand that we're saved by grace. We all understand that we still wrestle with sin. Just like in your family and with your close-knit friends, you understand there's people in your families, including yourself, there's people in your friends, including yourself, that are not perfect. And yet what do we continue to do with our family and friends? We continue to put up with them. We continue to show them grace. We continue to love on them. We continue to love them through their flaws. That's what the sincere brotherly love means. It's the ability to look past the flaws an individual may have and to accept them as for who they are in that moment, but also to who they're becoming. It is a sincere brotherly love which leads to the earnest deep love. Different word for love there in verse 22. Verse 22 The sincere brotherly love, that's Philadelphia. But love one another earnestly, that's agape love. So Peter's led by the Spirit to use two types of love. We have a brotherly love which looks past our flaws, but then it moves us to an earnest agape love, which is a self-sacrificing love. So despite the flaws, we still love them the way Jesus would love them. So the reason we have to prepare for community, we're called to each other, is we love each other sincerely in our sin so that we can love each other unselfishly out of our sin. 
which requires us, we've got to be in community. And that's scary for us. I imagine it was scary for these believers as they were just hurt by people that they, they lived in a community with. And they were just kicked out of the community they dwelled in. To prepare for community takes a lot of preparation in the mind. Because when you open yourself up, when you become vulnerable to people, you have to understand people at times will let you down. People at times will hurt your feelings. People at times will make you cry. People at times will make you ask God, why? But this preparing for communities, we drop down all charades, all hypocrisy, all masks. We understand that we're all saved by grace. And we're going to love each other deeply and earnestly so we can love each other out of these things that we continue to stumble with. And when we do this, the church becomes a beautiful image for the world to see. It sees a church of joy. It sees a church living up to the commandment that Jesus Christ gave us. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people, that all people there in John 13, that's speaking of the world. By the way we love each other here, the way we speak about each other out there, the world will know that we are belonging to Jesus. We are his disciples if you have love for one another. When we love each other, and, and this doesn't happen overnight, I understand this, but when we come to this place and we begin building community, we be begin building relationships, we begin sitting by people we haven't sat by before. I love my front row Baptists. Yay. But you all sat by each other before, so you don't really count. Uh, when, we, <laughs> when, we, when we start engaging with people we, we maybe haven't talked with before, maybe we've said hi and things like that, but when we start going out of our way to invest in other people's lives, here's what happens in the church. We get a taste of heaven. We get a taste of heaven. Because in heaven, we're all going to be in fellowship with one another as the children of God. But not only do we get a taste of heaven here, we give the world a glimpse of heaven. They see people who are just as messed up as they are, who don't have it together like they don't have it together, and yet they love each other, they put up with each other, they give grace to one another. They forgive each other. They cry with each other. They laugh with each other. They actually like each other. That's our testimony. And so when we talk about things coming up at church, Wednesday Night Lives or stuff that we're doing, this is the reason. We want people to see, get a glimpse of heaven by the way that we're loving each other in these activities. I want to put one on your calendar. Just because you put it there doesn't mean you have to come, but you can at least do it and make me happy at this moment. March 31st, it's a fifth Sunday. Now, I grew up in a Southern Baptist church, and fifth Sundays were fifth Sundays. I don't know if you all have that experience. If you don't, don't worry. You're like, it's not like some inside joke or anything like that. But fifth Sundays were always a different type of Sunday, especially fifth Sunday on Sunday nights, because, you know, that was like, you know, free-for-all, pick the song you never sang out of the hymn book before, and see if you can stump the piano leader. I mean, that's what it was. Um, but March 31st is a fifth Sunday. And so what we're going to do on this fifth Sunday is we're going to do what we've done for New Year's Eve in the past, and then we're going to have a game night. 
And it's going to go from uh, 4 o'clock to 8 o'clock because the next day there will be school. But what we're saying is invite your neighbors. Invite your coworkers. Bring one of your favorite games to share with your other brothers and sisters in Christ. We're going to gather on tables. We're going to laugh. We're probably get frustrated at each other because one of us will win and one of us will lose. But we'll have this community and this environment that maybe somebody you know, I just I don't know if I can go to church on a Sunday morning. I don't know if I can go to worship with you. But there'll come the idea of, of to a game night. And we don't do it just so we can play games. We do it so people can get a glimpse of heaven and of God's people loving each other. Love God, love people. Back here in 1 Peter, verse 8 of chapter 4, Peter gives this instruction, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. And we need to hear that. I need to hear that. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. What an awesome promise in the Word of God. We gather together and make up a church who are sinful people that represent a perfect God. If the Bible instructs us, we may get some things wrong. We may stumble in our sin. We may shy away from our faith at times. But if we agape love one another, if we sacrificially love one another, if we love one another in which we show that we actually care for one another, we're not just, hey, how you doing? We're investing in each other. The Bible gives this promise when we do that, it covers a multitude of our mistakes. All with love. Final thing I want us to see this morning. Prayer and commitment for change, for covenant, for community. We have to prepare through the constant. What is the constant? It's not the things of this world. It's not the people who surround you. It's not your bank account, your retirement, your job, not even your family or your marriage. It's not your ability. The constant is the Word of God. Verse 23 and 20 through 25 in 1 Peter. Since you have been born again, not a perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower grass. The grass withers, the, gra- the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains or endures forever. And this is the word, this is the good news that was preached to you. Over time, believe it or not, your friends will change. Some of you all have experienced that. Even with Facebook. Even though I can remain in contact with people I've gone to high school and college with, my friendship with them has changed. I don't get invited to their house like I did when I was living in the same town with them. You know, we know about each other, but we don't really know each other the way we could or the way we once did. Your friendships are going to change over time. Over time, your jobs will change. You may stay with a job your entire life and retire, and when you retire, your job will change. Right, Mike? Yes, thank you for agreeing. Appreciate that. Over time, loved ones will pass. Some of y'all experienced like me, your memories will begin to fade. Your physical abilities will begin to have limits. Where you live now may not be where you live later. 
Life is all about change. The Bible doesn't shy away from that. But the Bible teaches that in the midst of change, we are to prepare by clinging to the unchanging. The word of the Lord endures forever. And let's just think about this for a second as we wrap this up. I know the world's view of the Bible is that it's just another book. It has some good things in it, some things if you live by would actually impact your life and could be beneficial to other people. But the world's view of the Bible, God's Word, is just that it is just another book. Our belief as believers, when I say that I am a Christian, a disciple of God, I believe that the Bible is God's holy word. I believe that the word of God, which spoke all things into being in Genesis chapter 1, when he spoke it and it was, I believe that same power and that same word is what is written down on these pages. And so I believe as a Christian that these words have the same power and the same authority to create in me something that is not yet there. I believe the same word that is in these books, even in the mundane parts of the Bible, has the power to change people. And I believe it can change our community and our schools. But when I start seeing this as just another book, has some good stuff in it, then I fail to see the Bible for what it is and what it says it is. For 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, 17. All Scripture, Genesis to Revelation, all Scripture is breathed out by God just like he breathed out the command for things to come into being, is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, correction, and training of righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So I believe, and what we have to believe, is this word is given to me by the Almighty Father in heaven, given to me so I might be equipped and prepared for every work that He has set in front of me to do. So I have to prepare my mind for action. The only way I can do that is if my mind is in this word. So I need to spend more time in this word than I do on Facebook, on Twitter, on social media, on the TV, on the computer. This is what has to consume my mind. Because if it doesn't consume my mind, then this is not what is going to guide me. And I'm going to make mistakes. The Bible says in 2 Peter chapter 1, because God has done all this for us and He's given us His word, the one constant that will remain into all eternity, not a dot, not an iota will disappear from it. His divine power then has granted to us all things. Hear that again all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him. And how do I get knowledge of Him? Through His Word, who called us to His own glory and His excellence. Everything God has called and prepared us to do is all right here. This last week I got to go to career day at the school and I appreciate your prayers for for those who knew I was doing that, because I wanted to be respectful to the schools. I wanted to do it in such a way that I get invited back. Um, 
So I didn't go like with an hour sermon like I did last week. And for those who came back from last week, man, bless you, bless you. Um, you can, uh, I, I owe Stephanie and Margie, I think, an apology, but um, you know, they were in children's church. So just thankfully that's not the straw you pulled last week, right? Um, but anyway, I wanted to do it in such a way that was respectful to the school, but also more importantly, respectful to the word of God. Because I didn't have anything to tell those kids other than the Word of God that would be of importance in their life. And even though I was supposed to talk about my career and what it means to be a pastor, and I got some wonderful questions, which you can ask me about later if you'd like. But The one thing I wanted to make sure that they understood, and I said in every class that I had, is that I have the best job in the world because my job has the ability to impact all jobs. Because my job is to guide, lead, teach, prepare people to love God so they can love people. And that means loving people who we may disagree with and may be disrespectful to us or may make us angry. And, and I got to talk. I had my Bible in the class and things like that because I knew that was the only authority I had. I say that because sometimes I think we can... I was, I was tempted not to take my Bible in. That's my confession. I don't know if that's right or not. But I think we can do that as believers too. I think we can go to work on Monday. We can go to school on Monday. We can go to our athletic events. We can go on a date. We can be with our family and our marriage. And we don't have this with us. And this is the only thing that is going to equip you to be prepared for everything that God wants you to do. And so think about the things that you spent your time on yesterday. How much of that time was actually spent in the authoritative, powerful Word of God? My confession to you, and I I know, he's the preacher, he's probably in it all the time. I started my day off right, but the rest of the day I was enjoying Springfield traffic. We've got to be in this. We've got to be in it. Because the reality is when you live for Christ and you proclaim Christ, you are going to suffer with Christ. And if you try to do it on your own, you will fail. And that's what Peter is trying to tell these believers. You are in danger of becoming numb and stale. You've got to be ready. And the only way you can be ready is through this. So I believe we all need a reminder of the gospel at times. And the sad thing about this time of the service is, hey, Jackson, why don't you come on up here, buddy? Here's what happens in a lot of times, and I'll admit, I've been there too. The pastor comes at a time of invitation. I look around the room, and um, I I don't want to just assume, but I know a lot of y'all have been here before, and a lot of y'all probably believe in the Bible and believe in Jesus and things like that. I don't know where you are personally in your relationship with God. But I know as a believer, when I sit in worship sometimes and the pastor comes the invitation, what I can do sometimes is I can start to gather up my stuff. Zip up my Bible, put things away, make sure I'm, I'm ready for when we say amen, I can hit the car and I can get to where I want to get. And I, and I missed every time the presentation of the gospel. 
as believers, this should be one of our most favorite times of the sermon. As we get reminded of the gospel every single time we come to a time of invitation. And as believers, if you're a believer, here's what I want to challenge you to do. You should be praying in this time. You should be praying for the people who may be here right now who have yet to accept the gospel. That they are still in the darkness. They are not in the marvelous light of God. And so this may be something you've heard millions of times before, but if we become numb to the gospel, how are we going to live the gospel? Here's what we believe. God, for some reason, and all this power and all this holiness and all this authority, for some reason, created you and me for a relationship with Him. It's not that He needs us for a relationship. He, for some reason, wants a relationship with us. Yet the Bible also lets us know, and we are all aware of this, there are things in our life that we're not proud of. We got closets. And some of those closets we've got nailed pretty tight. We've got things we don't like to share with other people. We've got things that we feel self-conscious about. We've got things we hope mom and dad don't find out about. The Bible says that's, that's sin in our life. That's the understanding. I've got something in my life that should not be in relationship with a holy God. And so here's the thing we all try to do. And the gospel, this is part of the gospel. This is what the gospel says. We all do this. It's because we all know we've got sin. We all know we wrestle. We all know we fall short. We all know we do these things we shouldn't do, and yet we continue to do them at times. What we try to do is we try to make up for it. I'll just pray a little more. I'm going to read a little bit more. I'm going to go to church a little more often. I'm going to get involved. I'm going to, you know, when they say they need something, I'm going to give that something. I'm going to get plugged into different things. And those are all great things to do, except when we do it in order to earn God's favor for the mistakes that we've made. Because when we do that, here's what we do. We tell the holy God, your son Jesus dying for my sins on the cross and rising again was not enough. I've got to do something. Because what Jesus brought to the table, well, I need to bring a little bit more. And we're all in danger of doing this. Be a little bit better. Do a little bit more. Be a good person. Those are good things, but when we do it for our salvation, the Bible says, you know what? We don't understand the gospel in our salvation. Because the gospel is this. Jesus paid it all once and for all. Paid it all once and for all. And when we say once and for all, that means so many different things. But for all people. Paid it all once and for all. He paid it all for me. And God knows everything about me. Yet God loves me in a way I'll never fully understand. He wants me. God wants you. Just think on that for a moment today. And when I place my faith not in what I can bring, but what Jesus Christ has already done, 
Bible says I am completely, completely forgiven. It uses the word redeemed. It means it, it's taken away. And the beautiful thing about this, this is the beautiful thing about the gospel, is God doesn't ask for our resume. He doesn't ask for a background check. He doesn't ask you, well, are you going to do better from here on out? Gives this as a free gift for everyone and anyone who would just believe in it. The Bible says, when I, I may not fully understand it, but when I believe, okay, God loves me that much. I believe Jesus died on the cross and rose again. And I believe that in my heart. The Bible says, I'm saved. I'm saved. If we get bored with this message, we can forget about everything else. God saved us. So on the day of judgment, when I stand before him, here's the way God's going to look at me, a sinner saved by grace, a wretch. God is going to look at Mike Hurchin and see the complete righteousness and holiness of his son, Jesus Christ. That's all he's going to see. all he's going to see in you. He's going to say, welcome home. Welcome to where you really belong. This is what we want to proclaim to the world. This is why we love one another earnestly and deeply. You may be here this morning, and this is the love you need to accept this morning. You've heard it a hundred times, a thousand times. You may have even walked an aisle at one point in time. In your heart of hearts, you know, I only did that because someone else was doing it or someone else told me I had to do it. It wasn't my decision to accept the love of God for me through Jesus. If that's you here this morning, I'm going to invite you to come. Let me know. I guarantee you, if that's you this morning, and you're worrying about what other people may think, I guarantee you there's not a person in this room that's not going to celebrate with you. We're going to sing a song of invitation. We're going to lift him up because he should be exalted for everything he's done for us, everything he's given us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Well, I thank you that you give us this word that is difficult and is hard. You promised, Lord, your presence is always with us. Never leaving and forsake us. To the end of the age, you are our shepherd. Guiding us, leading us. And even those times we don't think you're there, you're right there in it. But I pray that, that I, I pray for this, this church, your church, your bride, your people, would be such a people that the world looks at the way we live. They see your glory your excellence. I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your mercy, your faithfulness. Lord, in this moment, just continue to do a good work in us, Lord. I pray for those who are here this morning that have been coming to church but really haven't been investing in other people's lives. It's so easy to do that, Lord. It's so easy just to check in and check out. Father, you've been calling them into something deeper. 
Father, I just pray for them in this moment. You know their hearts and their minds, the things they're wrestling with, the fears that are are coming at them at this moment. I I pray your word over them. You have not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So I pray that spirit would control them. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ in this moment that are dealing with change and transformation, and, and that's tough because we want to cling to what we know your word defines as our former ignorance. So Father, give us the strength when the tempter comes to try to pull us from where you're taking us and to stay where we are or even to step back. Lord, give us the strength to be faithful in those moments. I pray for our students. As they face temptations and trials and sometimes persecution for standing for their faith and making decisions that maybe their friends aren't making on on the teams or the activities they're associated with. As they're making decisions to glorify you, Lord, and I pray that during the midst of those persecutions that they would stand even firmer. They would give you praise. Lord, forgive me if I've become... one who goes through the motions when it comes to your gospel. Lord, forgive me if I have lost the joy of my salvation. Lord, tune our hearts to you in this moment. Let us lift you up. Let us exalt you for you alone are worthy of praise. Praise all in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you're here this morning and you accept Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior, I'm going to invite you to come. I'll be standing here. If you want to talk to me, Charlie, you mind popping up here as well? Lord, I don't want to talk to the pastor. Talk to Charlie. He's one of our elders. We'll be up here. Invite you guys. Let's dance with you.